carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The grass withers, the flower fades. Would you pray with me as we begin this morning? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We pray now in this time that you would lift high Jesus in our sight. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. John was born on July 24th, 1725, so almost 300 years ago in a couple years. His mother was a godly woman. He learned the Westminster Catechism as a young kid. He was singing the hymns of Isaac Watts, one of the great hymn writers of the day. But when his mom passed away at the age of, when John was six years old, he lost basically all godly influence in his life was, was gone. By the time he was 11 years old, which is the age of some of you in this room, he was not going to school, but he was a, a sailor on a ship in the Mediterranean with his father, who had been doing it for decades before him. He did that for seven years or so. He actually traveled around the Mediterranean Sea, I think it, his biography says six or seven times, by the time he was 18. And when he was 18, he was conscripted, he was forced to join the British Royal Navy, which he hated, and which led to, really, he would say, the, the kind of the lowest point of his life, where he saw his moral transformation go from bad to worse. So looking back later on his life, he writes this of himself about his years in the Navy. I was capable of anything. I didn't have the, the, I had not the least fear of God before my eyes, nor, so far as I can remember, the least sensibility of conscience. I sinned with a high hand, so he sinned on purpose. I made it my study to tempt and to seduce others. And then if that's not bad enough, if that's like a, that's a bleak picture, his profession, the thing he was doing after he got out of the Navy, he still, this is all of his life had been spent on the sea at this point, and so he joins a ship that is engaged in the West African slave trade. 
He was employed by and then eventually became the captain of a ship that was working to go take people from West Africa and transport them around the British Empire and sell, sell them in the marketplace. What hope is there for a man like John? For people who are religious, like many of us, and who look at him, it would, he'd be regarded as a pagan. And maybe even like the worst kind of faith. He, he says that he enjoys, he sins with a high hand, he does this on purpose. And then beyond that, it says that he's like trying to grab people and say, come sin with me. He's pulling people in with him. And for people who maybe not be concerned about his religious life today, from, from today's vantage point, you can look back on him and say he was involved in an occupation that just makes him maybe irredeemable. There's nothing that he could do. And for a man like John, engrossed in a lifestyle of heinous and horrendous sin, what could he possibly do to be made right? Well, maybe he could find like a heroic deed. Uh, you think of some, some of the ancient Roman myths. He could go do one great thing. If John goes on to cure cancer or like abolish the slave trade throughout the world, maybe that will tip the scales. Or maybe he's a young man. If he lives long enough, he could stack up just millions of really small good deeds. And slowly over the course of time, maybe he tips the scale of justice in his favor. Those may sound like some solutions. They may be some solutions that we've thought in our own mind that we have told people or heard people say they could do something like that. But those are not real answers. The answer, friend, is that John can do nothing. There's not one thing that he can do that would outweigh, that would undo the evil that he had committed. And the good news of this passage that we read today is that that's true of him. But there is someone who can do something about his situation. We see that what is impossible with man is actually possible with God. And the main point of our passage, the thing I want to persuade you is true from Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is this. By grace, God makes dead sinners alive with Christ. By grace, God makes dead sinners alive with Christ. And to, to structure our time together, we're just going to walk through this passage. And even as you heard Graham read it, uh, thank you, Graham, for reading. I love watching you read even, and you, there's good points that you're excited about. Thank you for doing that. Uh, we'll, I'll come back to that. We're, we're, I'm going to point out just kind of how this, how this breaks down. There are three major themes that we see in this passage, and, and they come together at the middle. In verse 5, kind of the, the apex, the center of our passage, you'll see all three of the main themes right there. So look in your Bibles at Ephesians 2.5 and you'll have all three of the sermon points this morning. Even when, when we were dead in our trespasses, that's going to be point number one, God made us alive together with Christ. That'll be point number two. By grace, you've been saved. That'll be our third point. My prayer for us this morning is that, that when we see God's grace poured out and given to dead sinners, as we were, that we would be, we would be led to humility, that we would be encouraged by His grace, and that we would actually be propelled out of the church, out of this place with joy into the world, carrying the message of God's grace to humanity. Uh, if you were here with us last week on Easter, we looked at Ephesians 1, 15 through 23 and saw there God demonstrated his power and that he raised Jesus from the dead. 
And he set Jesus as the head over all of humanity. He has authority over all of the world. And then here in Ephesians 2, Paul is going to turn his attention. So he's saying, here's who Christ is. I hope that you see this clearly. That's what he prayed for in Ephesians 1. And now in Ephesians 2, he's going to look at his audience. He's going to look at us and say, okay, if this is the picture we have of Jesus, if this is what Christ has done, so what for you? Why does the power of God demonstrated in his resurrection matter for you? And he starts by looking at our lives before Christ. In verses 1 through 3, where he says, we are dead in our trespasses. Let's listen again to verses 1 through 3 and the very bleak picture that's painted of all humanity apart from Christ. Verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Uh, maybe you grew up in a home like mine where there were, there were like some things probably that my grandmother did, like cross-stitched verses on walls. Uh, this is not one of those verses that you have hanging up on your wall, most likely. This is not some motivational speech where you look at the mirror and you say, you know, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. Now this, this is, I am worse than I thought, and I'm powerless to do anything about it. And dadgummit, there is an enemy who hates me. You really see the, the bleakness of this picture as you look at the powers arrayed against humanity. Paul lists these enemies coming against the people of, uh, not just the people of God, but all of humanity. Three things that he lists. First, there's the course of this world. The course of this world. Uh, think of that, that's, that's like saying society that is in its attitudes, its habits, its preferences. If you just kind of follow along with what the society is saying, it is, you're following it not to heaven, but on a course of destruction. It's actually set against God in some ways, and then it's at least indifferent to God in many other ways. And, and I doubt that this is something I really need to convince you of uh, today. I, I've talked to many of you, and uh, this comes up in our own families. We're thinking about school choice and where, what happens in our family. Where do we live? What do we do and participate in? But the course of this world, Paul says, is one that is arrayed against Christ and his people. It's one that if you follow mindlessly, it doesn't end up where you hope it does. The course of this world is one that says, you know, nobody can tell you who you are. You can marry who you want to. You can call yourself whatever you would like to. You define your own existence. The course of this world says you can use your language to kind of own your opponents. As long as you're using it powerfully for your side, say whatever you want to. Slander however you want to. The course of this world says, you know, if you want to have all these experiences, think of all the yard work you can get done on Sundays. Think of all the travel you can do. Just jump out of being with God's people and jump back in in several years. It'll be fine. And this is, this is not just, we're not living in a day and age where the course of the world today is set against God's people. And like, you try to think of like a golden era and probably talk to the people around you. They probably have different golden eras in their own mind. This is just something that's always been true. So for, for these Ephesians, for the people in Ephesus, 
the course of this world is saying Jesus is fine. That's cute. But, but you gotta add him to the other gods. Do that and you'll be okay. Uh, the course of this world in some parts of our, our country in like the 1950s, the 1850s, said it's fine. That person with different skin color, view them as subhuman. The course of this world led in that way. There is no golden age where you can just kind of treat society like a lazy river. You know, you just kind of bob in there and you assume that by the end you arrive at the celestial city. You get on heaven's doorstep. Now, following the course of this world, Paul says, ends up in death. And sin. And on top of kind of this external force, so the course of this world is going to carry you in this way. Paul says you actually have another enemy outside of you, but it's a personal enemy. It's the devil. So in this world, if you read the Bible, you can't come away saying there's only what we can taste and see and smell and touch. We live in a supernatural world. We celebrated last week and every Sunday that a dead man rose from the grave. There is, beyond the things that we can see and taste, there is a spiritual realm where the angelic host worship and work for King Jesus. And we're told in the Bible that there is a demonic host whose job, who, who what they want to do is deceive and destroy mankind. They are working against man. And there is a captain leading that demonic host. The spirit that is now work in the sons of disobedience, or as he says before that, the prince or the ruler of the power of the air. Elsewhere in the Bible, he's called, you've heard probably this one more commonly, he's called Satan. A name that means he is the accuser, or he's called, uh, the, he's called the devil in the New Testament. He's a slanderer of God's people. And since Genesis 3, even there in the garden, we see that there is a, an enemy who is out to say, follow me. God says this, come this way. And Paul says we are, apart from Christ, formally following him. So we have this external force in the course of this world. We have a personal, spiritual enemy telling us to follow him. But beyond that, if you think all of my problems are outside of me, Paul says we actually have an enemy in our flesh, in ourselves. We, we are not just kind of hapless and helpless victims of circumstances. Uh, you remember the lame excuse that, that Eve uses in Genesis 3? It started with Adam and he says, this woman that you gave to me, and Eve just kind of copies and says, that, that one, that serpent, he, he made me do this. That's not true. The devil does not make us do that. He may tell us to follow him, but we in our flesh say yes. Just think back to something that you did. A sin, uh, if you're a Christian here, you can think back to your life before Christ. You can think back to something this past week. Most Sundays we have prayers of confession in this church. We had baptism this morning instead. But, but a prayer of confession is an, an acknowledgement, I just struggled that word there, an acknowledgement that we have sin in our lives. And, and there was no, the devil is fighting against you, but he does not grab your hand to click on that website. Uh, the course of this world may be telling you to follow him, but it, it is not the one that ultimately says this is what's going to come out of your mouth. No, we in our flesh do what we desire, and in our flesh our desires are bent inward. They're selfish, uh, selfish, not Godward. We have a threefold enemy in the world, in the flesh, in the devil, standing in powerful opposition to all of humanity. And it is against all of humanity, Paul says. This is pervasive. You see here the pervasiveness of sin. 
Paul just kind of makes this, this move in the first few verses. He starts with this, and you. So talking to a group of Gentile Christians in Ephesus. Then he kind of backs up and says, actually, it's not just you. But he was at work among whom we all once lived. And then by the end of verse 3, you can see at the very end of verse 3, he expands this out in the most, the broadest way possible. We were, by nature, children of wrath. And then like this, like the rest of mankind. No one escapes that description. This may be a difficult truth, but the truth is that sin is part now of our very nature. David brings this out in his psalm, in Psalm 51, verse 5. He has sinned with Bathsheba, and this is what he says in looking at his sin. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David's sin didn't just like manifest when he saw a woman woman bathing on the roof. He says it was there in his bones, just as it's in the bones of all of humanity from Adam and Eve to today. Even this past week, uh, I saw an article uh, about the Dalai Lama. Uh, The Dalai Lama is the recognized head of Tibetan Buddhism. So millions of people look to this man for spiritual leadership. Millions of people will say that he is kind of the voice of the divine here. He's, He's acknowledged even apart from Buddhists. A lot of people would say he's one of the holiest men around. If you want a, a picture of what to do, go go watch him. But there was a video that came out this week of some indecency that prompted him to issue a public apology. And brothers and sisters, we just shouldn't be surprised by sin. We just shouldn't be surprised by sin. We see it in ourselves, clearly. And from the prisoner in the lowest dungeon to the Pope... To the highest kind of religious figure you can think of, sin should make us sorrowful. We should mourn sin, but we should not be surprised. And with all of humanity under the dread sway of sin, we have clear eyes to see the position of humanity. The position of humanity. We are dead. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Uh, kids, this is Bible trivia time. So, I am going to ask you a question, and I would love for you to raise your hand. We're going to try this, and I'm going to point to you, and I'd love an answer. Okay, so does anybody remember what did God say would happen to Adam and Eve if they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What would happen, Jackson? They would have to leave the garden? That's right. And then one day, what would happen to them? What else? They would die. That's right. God said they would have to leave the garden, all this perfect place where they are. They would have to leave and that they would die. One day, unless the Lord comes back, every single one of us in this room, every single person in this world will die physically. And Paul says that physical death that comes for us, we're actually more like, in some ways, zombies today. We're walking around apart from Christ, spiritually dead. You may have physical life, but apart from Christ, even today, you are spiritually dead. So why can't John, who I mentioned in my introduction, why can't he work his way out of sin? Because he's dead. And dead men can do nothing, not one thing to work their way out. Sin is like the executioner's axe, leaving us without anything we can do. And more than that, so being dead is bad. But more than that, this text tells us that we are objects of wrath. 
if death is bad, wrath is worse. And this wrath is not ultimately coming from the devil and his minions. That's true, there is wrath. They, they hate us. But this wrath is God's wrath that ultimately falls upon sinful humanity in the judgment. God is perfectly holy. With him there is no sin, not one speck or shroud. And sin that comes into contact with him is burned up. And so apart from Christ, that that describes us. That's why God is called a consuming fire in places like Deuteronomy 4.24 or Hebrews 12.29. The author of Hebrews says it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. It's hard to think of a grimmer picture. This is maybe one of the grimmest pictures painted in the New Testament of mankind and their state of sin. Mankind, apart from Christ, is following a course of this world, following a personal enemy, just doing what they want to in their flesh, and they're following all of that to hell. And after this, we get one of the best portions of the Bible. When this looks bleak, when it looks like hell has won and hope is lost, we run into one of the shortest phrases in the Bible that brings so much hope that Graham couldn't help but smile at when he read. Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What good news. God made us alive together with Christ. Of all of the sons of disobedience marching on their way to hell, some are pulled back and they're now made into sons of God by Christ and following their risen king to heaven. Carly Cross is a member candidate here at Philadelphia. She told me this past week she was sad she couldn't be here because of how much these words have meant to her, how dear they have been to her. Uh, But she did give me permission to share just a brief snippet of her testimony. At some point in college, Ephesians 2 became the most precious words and truth that I have ever read. I would walk to class reading it and write it on my class notes always in awe. And still to this day, that the Lord chose to make the sinful girl who grew up in a broken family alive in Christ. Just so he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace expressed in kindness toward me. What is it about these words that have captured people like Carly and like Amanda Harrison who lists this verse in her testimony as well? I think in part we're captured because we just see so clearly the evident character of God and his love. We see here the love of God. Maybe you've heard the phrase before, God helps those who help themselves. Uh, there's, there's a lot of people who believe that, a lot of people who believe that's in the Bible. It's, it's not and actually what's, what's in the Bible is this, that God doesn't help those who help themselves. God helps the helpless, those who are dead and can do nothing, the broken, the beat down, the dead. Those are the ones who God helps. We have no hope in ourselves, but in his mercy, he saves us out of his overwhelming love. 
Now, if you come away and you think there's a little bit of a question I have, because about three minutes ago, I just said that apart from Christ, we are objects of wrath. And now you're saying that God's character is one of love. What, what do I, how do I do that? What kind of math problem is that that I'm trying to work out in my head? And I think that's a, a great question. And the place where we see that most clearly, where we see the wrath and love of God displayed is at the cross of Christ. There at the cross, out of the love for his people, God sends his only son to die that we might be redeemed. There at the cross, the wrath of God is judged on the sin of people in his son. Jeremy Treat uh, is a pastor and theologian. He, He puts these together well. It's on your note sheet if you were able to get one of those. He says this, at the cross, the wrath of God was poured out on the sin of the world. But get this, it was driven by the love of God. Through the wisdom of the cross, the love of God satisfies the wrath of God to redeem the people of God. Friends, have you reckoned with this view of God held out in the scriptures? Okay, the Bible doesn't display God as some sort of, uh, he's like an irrationally angry deity. You kind of shake him and pop the can and he's going to blow a lid on anybody around him. But he does stand in settled opposition to sin. It is not capricious, it's against sin and sin people. His perfect justice demands that evil be purged. And, and maybe we think purging evil, that's a good thing. That sounds like a great world to live in until you realize that evil is within every one of his people, every one of, of humanity. All of us have evil inside of us. So if we want God to purge evil, then eventually that means it comes against us. His wrath against sin is settled and sure. He cannot simply look the other way because he is a perfect judge. But in his love, he sent his own son, Jesus, who lived a perfect life that we should have lived He died the death that we should have died, bearing in his flesh the wrath of God. His love and his justice, they agree and they meet at the cross. And at the cross we see God's work in uniting a people to his son. We are united to Christ. You can go see that in scripture and other places of talking about us dying with Christ at the cross. But here specifically, Paul is going to talk about our life in Christ. And that's why I'm so happy we were able to have baptism this morning. Baptism is a visible picture of this, of union with Christ. What has happened to Jesus has happened now in his people. Not because we're great, but because God and his mercy unites us with Christ. He says, you have now died to your sin. And the penalty of sin that was coming to you, you've died to that. And you've been raised in new life, and now the very righteousness of God is placed upon you. So Paul tells us here, we have been regenerated. We have been given new life with Christ. So in our sin, we are dead. And in Christ, we have new life. This should, if you know the Bible, this brings back to mind maybe what you read in John chapter 3. This discussion of the Pharisee, Nicodemus, going to talk with Jesus. And Nicodemus goes at night and he starts telling Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a man from God because nobody can do the things you're doing. Nobody could turn water into wine, do these miraculous deeds unless God was with him. And Jesus turns to him and his first words are, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. To go from dead to life, we need a supernatural act of God himself. So did you have anything to do with your birth? Did you tell your parents, I'd like to be born in this year, at this time, at this place? No, you had nothing to do with that. And just the same way, apart from Christ, we have no way to make ourselves new. But God, in uniting us with Christ, has given us new life so that we could see our situation. Trust him and repent and believe. In being made new, being regenerated, we're also resurrected with Christ. So just as we pictured earlier in baptism, we are raised to walk in new life. We are given new spiritual life today. So you were spiritually dead, and in being raised with Christ, that's not just saying that one day you will be resurrected with him. That is true, and that is good news that we look forward to. But it also means that today you have spiritual life in Christ And if we have followed Jesus and his resurrection, then we are also now in some way reigning with Christ, seated with him in the heavenly places. This is maybe the toughest to see. We don't have like a visible picture of this. You know, maybe if we got some cable in here and had Addison kind of levitate out over the crowd after his baptism, maybe we'd picture that better. But in some way, God says, you're now reigning. You're seated with Christ. Here's here's what I think he means, why, why he brings this up. He says, apart, once you are following the prince of the power of the air. Okay, once all of the, the spiritual forces of evil arrayed against you, you were following with them. Now you have spiritual life, and you're following the risen king. And so when the prince of the power of the air, the, the ruler and the sons of disobedience says, follow me, you actually have the power of Christ in you by the Holy Spirit to say, no. No. I belong to Jesus I am seated with him in the heavenly places, and I don't have to follow you into sin. That is the authority. That's good news, friends. That's good news. That we are not, we do not have to follow in the sin that is coming against us. We have been resurrected to new life, and now we have even the authority of Christ over this. And God's purpose in all of this is there at the end of verse 7. He says he has done this. So that we might, for eternity, be trophies of God's good grace. I had lunch uh, this week with a man. Uh, I've told some of you this story. About three to four weeks ago, I walked out of the office of, of Philadelphia, and there was a guy just standing at the door, and he said, Hello, I would like to talk about God and Christianity. And I said, I'll volunteer. I'll, I'll be happy to do that. So we, we got together this past week to talk about some of his questions. Um, and one of his questions was, was this, won't we be bored in heaven? Like, what, what kind of hope do I have to look forward to? Maybe, maybe for like a year, it'll be really cool, but then won't it get really mundane? And I think that's a, a, a good question. Kids, maybe you have uh, thought that one before. Adults, maybe you've thought that question. Uh, I have a, a book recommendation. Uh, I'm going to put this in the library if you want to go look at this. And this is not just for kids, uh, for adults, if you want a good answer to this question. It's called The Awesome, Super, Fantastic Forever Party by Joni Erickson Tata. Uh, I've learned much from her, even in just thinking about this. It's a great book that may kids may help you answer that question in your own mind. Am I going to be bored in heaven? My quick answer to that is no, because Jesus will be there. Always a good Sunday school answer, and true, Jesus will be there. But then as I studied this passage, as I was thinking over that question with this, this man that I had on Monday, I think I gained even greater confidence in that answer. 
Because this, this passage says that God has saved us so that for all of eternity we might be trophies of his amazing and astounding grace. Maybe you've met someone with a testimony that you, you walk away with and you think, or maybe this is your own testimony, and you think only God could do something like that. Only God could do something like that. The reality is, we've just said we're dead and we're made alive. So that's true of all of our testimony. If you think your testimony is boring, in the eyes of the Lord, and one day, maybe not today, but you will realize the amazing miracle God has done in bringing you from death to life. But for, for all of eternity, we get to spend it looking around at each other and realizing just how marvelous God's grace is. It'll be like story time in, in eternity. Maybe we'll go up to someone uh, like, like Mei Chen. We'll say, everybody, this is May. And she thought she was coming to the United States because she wanted to, she wanted to be a nurse. And she wanted to study nursing. And in God's good purposes, and in His great mercy, His purpose for bringing her here was so that she would hear the gospel and be the first Christian in her family. Praise God for His amazing grace. Everybody, this is, is Molly. And Molly grew up very differently than May. She grew up and she heard the gospel from birth. And at five years old, she said, I want to follow Jesus. And then she went in her room and drew a picture of what she thought heaven would be like. And that, that has, Molly's life has not just been simple since then. There's been anxiety and worry and things that have made it difficult, that made life hard. But she's held, she's clung closely to Jesus and Jesus and his mercy has brought her through And that picture that she drew as a five-year-old is now before her eyes. Praise God for his grace. Everybody, this is Mary. And Mary lived to be a hundred. And for all of her days, even at the end of her days when her body is failing and her mind is not all there, she was praying for God's people. And she was praising God that she was saved from eternal death. Praise God for his grace. Brothers and sisters, I have spent this week longing to see that day. And longing to see, even in your own stories, that some of which I know and some of which I'm just learning, longing to see the visible display of God's grace in his saints. And I don't think we'll get bored with that, of seeing the magnificence of Jesus displayed in the lives of his people. And we should, we should be praying fervently that we would see more of that that the gospel would go out, not just here, but in our communities and across the world, so that one day when we get to eternity, we would see his amazing grace in every picture of his saving mercy in people's life. The, the picture of verses 1 through 3, that picture, that should give us urgency. We should say there is a real hell, and there are people marching towards it, going off the precipice of that Every day. And then the glory of verses 4 through 7. Friends, that should put steel in your spine and joy in your hearts as you go to show people the hope found in the gospel of Jesus. So let me encourage you. Just, just a specific encouragement today. Think, think of one person. Just one person. You think, you know, I, this is somebody who I know I should be maybe sharing the gospel with. I want them to see Christ. Start today praying for that. And maybe even this week, just use an opportunity to say, hey, how was, how was your weekend? And if they reciprocate, you can just tell them, I read the best news in the world. You don't have to say a word about the sermon. You just say, here's, here's Ephesians 2. Let me show this to you. This is how my weekend was. I was reminded of God's amazing grace in my life.
And if you do something like that, I would love to hear that. I'd love to be praying with you and for you as you're wanting to spread the gospel in your neighborhood or in your family or your workplace. We should be praying to the Lord of the harvest that he would build his church, that he would use his people to bring people to himself by his grace and for his eternal glory. We have, friends, been brought from death to life. Praise God. And this wasn't just our own work. This was not our work. Paul in verse 5 there. Uh, if you ever, uh, I've done this, and maybe if you're teaching something, you just kind of interject, and then you, you're like, I, that, I just got too excited, and I started saying, I'm getting ahead of myself. Paul in verse 5, he just blurts out, by grace you've been saved. Uh, and he's like, that's a different sermon. I'll come back to that in a few verses. And then here, here he comes in verses 8 through 10. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. If you want to get in on this good news, if you want to see what it takes, what does it mean? How do I, how, how do I get this? You should know right now that we are saved by grace through faith. It's not something that you earn. It's not how it works. Paul and the rest of the Bible testify that grace is a gift, that faith is a gift given freely by Jesus. All we need, we have the open hands of faith to receive and accept him. And faith, faith is more, friends, this is something maybe especially needed to be said in a, a context in Birmingham where lots of people know good stuff about Jesus. And faith is just more than knowing good truths about him. Right, the James 2.19, demons believe these truths about God and their response is shuddering. You can know good things about him, but faith is a settled trust in Christ. Theologian uh, J.V. Fesco, he gives this illustration that I, I hope helps kind of paint a picture of the, the difference between this kind of knowledge and actual saving faith. He says, I can go to the airport and recognize the fact that there is an airplane in front of me. I can acknowledge the fact that the airplane and its pilot can hurtle down the runway and leap into the air for sustained flight. I can study the principles of aeronautics and comprehend that when air rushes over a curved surface, it creates lift, which thus enables the airplane to fly. But if I want to get anywhere, I must trust the airplane and its pilot, board the aircraft, take my seat and ride the airplane in order to demonstrate my faith in it. A bare knowledge of Christ and his claims is insufficient for salvation. We must trust that he is the only way to be saved from our sin and the only one who can give eternal life. Friends, do you have this kind of faith? Do you have that kind of trust in Christ? This kind of faith from God grabs tightly to Jesus for salvation and it won't let go. So maybe even today you'd say, I know a lot about Jesus. I could win Bible trivia even. I could do sword drill and get to the obscure Bible passage really quickly. But I don't know if I've actually trusted him. If you ask if I was able to follow him, willing to follow wherever he told me to go, I don't know if that's me. If that's you today, I would love to plead with you. I want to plead with you to place your trust, your faith in Christ. And if that's something you want to do today, please tell somebody about that. I'll be up here down front after the service. I'd be happy to talk to you about that. If you came with another Christian, you can talk to them at lunch and ask them, how can I trust and follow Christ today? We are saved by grace through faith. And our salvation is by grace in humility. In humility. So if God saves us by grace, 
then who gets all the glory? It's God's glory. It's not ours. Maybe remember the story in Judges chapter 7. There's a story of uh, Gideon and his quote-unquote army. At the time, at the beginning of the story, they have like 32,000 men. They're going to go against the Midianites. They're going to go squash them. But God says, you know, over the course of several events, he whittles that 32,000 down to 300 men. Why not? Why not just go crush them? Set an example to all the surrounding nations. We have an army. Don't come at us. In Judges 7-2, it says, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand. And here, here's the reason. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. God saved these people in Judges 7 and throughout the Bible. This is the story. He saves in this way so that we would know it is God's doing. And not yours, not mine. The reason you are a Christian, brother and sister, is not because you are smarter than the people around you. It's not ultimately because you have a better family. God doesn't just give faith to people who are more righteous or who have like the right moral sensibilities. He gives his grace through faith. And so none of us on that day, on that final day, there will be no strutting in heaven. Okay, no cockiness before the throne of God saying, my hand has accomplished this. And the native language, the way you want to know this, you, if you want to ask this of myself, am I demonstrating humility in my, in my faith, in my grace, in the grace that I've received? Uh, the native language of humility is thanksgiving. So look at your prayers. Look at, look at how you're teaching your kids to pray, what, what we're doing in our, in our homes and in our church. Do you recognize the overwhelming kindness of God displayed to you? You walk in humility. Constantly thankful for what God has done for you and for his people. Salvation by grace keeps us humble. And lastly, Paul tells us that we are saved by grace for good works. Uh, This guy that I had lunch with to talk about Christianity, he asked me about this well. He was curious if grace means like we just kind of get away with whatever we want to do. If it takes away motivation to do Good works, and I was, let me, let me show you a book of the Bible, a passage I'm studying this week, which is great. And I told him Christians are those who love Christ more than we love our sin. So being saved by God's grace then doesn't lead to more sin, but it leads to good works. Just look back up in uh, Ephesians 1 4. We looked at this several weeks ago. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. And then in the coming, this is also just like a preview of coming attractions. So chapters four through six, Paul is going to bear this out over and over. Here are the good works that it looks like. We're going to spend several weeks looking at what our lives look like now that we have followed Christ. But Christian, just know that you writing letters to teachers in Kaaba Heights to encourage them to keep going in the difficult work they have, or you taking a sister to a medical appointment because she doesn't want to go by herself, Taking a meal to a family who is having medical complications, these all bring praise to God. It should be demonstrations to yourself that you should be thankful that God has given you a new heart to want to do these things. And they are emblems that you are alive with Christ. Even drawing other people in to say, why on earth would that guy go spend his time with that person who is so different from him? That's confusing to the world. And it's a way to say, let me tell you why. Because I've been given new life in Christ. And this is actually what happens in the life of John, who I told you about at the beginning of our sermon. One night, as he was 
sailing, a terrible storm came upon his ship. He was sleeping in the uh, below decks and he noticed water in coming up, which is never a good thing to see when you're sleeping in a boat. And so he runs to the deck to go help. As he's helping, the captain comes up to him and sends him to go get something else. John goes to get this and when he comes back, the man who took his place has been swept overboard and never to be found again. For the next 24 hours, John spends his time pumping water from the ship, steering until the storm subsides. And, and then after the storm is over, he can't stop thinking about his near-death experience. What, what would have happened if I would have been swept over the side of the, the ship? And that leads him back to what his mother had taught him, and ultimately back to the scriptures of his youth. By God's good grace, he found the gospel of Christ. God gave him a new heart gave him life. Eventually, he goes from working as a slave trader to working to abolish the slave trade. He is demonstrating his life in good works. And for 43 years, John works as a pastor in a town where he's, he's known to have special care for children and for the downcast. He goes and visits. Uh, there's this letter from another pastor who actually disagrees with John. And John goes and visits a dying man to share this gospel of grace with him. And this pastor's like, he put me to shame. I don't, I don't even agree with all this stuff, but he, he shows that he trusts this is true. He helped his friend William Wilberforce fight for the end of slave trading in Britain. And on December 21st, 1807, John died. And you can actually go to his tomb today outside the city of Olney, where he served as a pastor. And there on his tombstone, you will find inscribed an epitaph that he himself wrote. John Newton, once an infidel and libertine. A servant of slaves in Africa was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. And whenever he looked back at his life, this man, John Newton, was in awe. He was constantly in awe of the grace that God had showed him, so much so that he put it down into words that we still sing today. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Praise God, friends, for his life-giving grace in Christ. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that though we were dead and even when we were dead in our sins, following the prince of the power of the air, doing what we wanted to in our flesh, captive to the course of this world, you in your great mercy sent your son Jesus to die and be raised to new life so that we could too. We praise you, God. We thank you for your grace. I pray, Father, that you would send us out Send your people out from this church and other churches around our city and around the world who know this grace to call others to you. Or would you bring the stranger home so that one day we might, with each other and with your son Jesus, marvel at your amazing grace for all of eternity. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.